You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Okay. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Superlative Podcast. I am joined by the CEO of IWC Watches, Mr. Chris Granger. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. IWC is one of the most important of the modern watch brands because you are a tool watchmaker. There's so many things to talk about, not only the brand, but your role in this brand. Um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to quickly explain sort of the, the time you've spent at the brand and, and how you got to being CEO of IWC. Yeah, thank you. It's been quite the journey. So I actually started off probably when I was nine or 10 years old, um, really uh, designing sports equipment. That was really my, my starting point. And I always originally wanted to go into apparel or something like that. I was fascinated by all the winter sports equipment, uh, snowboards. I mean, 1989, 90, that was sort of when Burton first came to Europe and snowboarding was a big thing. And from there, it went into mainly mountain bikes, also sports clothing. And then I started to get really, really interested in movie sets. That was probably when I was uh, old enough to go to the cinema, I guess. And this would have been the mid-90s. There was films like The Rock with Sean Connery and Heat and with, uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, films like that, that really and fascinated me from a set design perspective. And uh, I got quite obsessed with them, sort of watched these movies like three, four times in cinema, one day after another, sort of taking notes and sketching and stuff. And then I drew right, a lot right. of those things. Uh, and then basically when I came to going to uni, I first thought I was going to go into something like fashion design, but I really sort of didn't click with the courses and the tutors. And then I saw a studio at Central St. Martin's in London that I really liked the look of. And I asked them, what's that? And they said, well, that's spatial design, basically interior design. And that's what I ended up doing in the end. And it was really a community that um, I enjoyed a lot. And of course, I joined a lot because it's super varied, really, from sort of business to ergonomics to environmental psychology. It's a very, very varied degree, and I really enjoyed it. And that's when I had my first contact to sort of the luxury world, because we had a sort of internship year that I spent some of it in, in Santa Monica, but uh, most of it in London, um, working for a company that did mostly um, high street fashion, but also um, a little bit uh, sort of Bond Street, Sloan Street uh, jewelry and gentlemen's accessories and stuff like that. And, and that's really when I first realized that I loved retail design because I liked the sort of the, the very sort of uh, minute little details and all of the uh, scene setting of lighting and security and showcase engineering paired with sort of the in, in interior design of the overall space. And I really clicked with that. That's kind of a precious art gallery type space was something I really enjoyed doing. And then I ended up in, in Switzerland, in Basel. Um, once I completed my uh, undergraduate degree, I actually had two choices, either to go and work for Azara for Inditex for the uh, fashion chain, their store design department down in Spain, but I didn't speak any Spanish. So that was not really an option unless I wanted to do a super hyper crash course in Spanish. And the other one was to do sort of a master's degree in, in Basel in Switzerland in interior design, which is what I ended up doing because I loved the, uh, the architecture scene in Switzerland at the time. And uh, that's when my paths crossed with IWC because after I completed that degree, I um, did a, a year's work in, in, in Zurich and we got contacted by IWC whether we wanted to pitch for their museum. And my dad was a mechanical watch guy. And I remember very clearly when I had to spend hours in a jewelers in Bern in Switzerland when he bought his first Nautilus back in the 80s. 
And uh, that was the time when I really started to look at mechanical watches. And uh, all through my, my university time, I'd always clicked with RWC. There was a retailer on my way to uni, and I, I used to stop outside the uh, shop windows and think that I loved the sort of the purity of the RWC watches. I liked they kind of spoke to me a little bit about sort of an active mindset about adventure, but they weren't overloaded. They weren't glitzy. They weren't, you know, in your face. They're really sort of quietly confident and I love that and and then obviously when the the call came back in 2004 it must have been or early 2005 I just absolutely jumped at the idea um I rendered like a full concept for the museum uh, on my poor student laptop at the time <laughs> just suffering it overheating a lot and we went in Monday morning and we presented and uh, they liked the concept and then I worked on that for sort of basically a year externally um Right. And at the same time, they were doing a, a, the first boutique here in Schaffhausen, the first store, which was linked to the museum. And I also designed that, and I realized they didn't have anybody who knew anything about architecture. And that's why I applied to RWC and why I then started in 2006, basically as an architect. And I did a lot of the boutiques and exhibitions. And after that, a lot of stops uh, around different bits of marketing and trade marketing um, helped a lot on repositioning and designing concepts for other brands, such as Debris, for example, where I did the first retail concept under Richemont. And then in the end, uh, sort of came back uh, after a while into sort of more of a, a retail management role and a brief stint as sales director. And then in 2017, there we were, um, CEO from there. So it's been quite a, quite a journey. That's kind of a fast jump to CEO. I mean, let's, I mean, this is an industry, it's all about stepping stones and stuff like that, at least traditionally. That's impressive. I mean, what did, you know, it's, someone's going to be like, you know, who's, uh, Who's whose favor did you have to ca you know cash in exactly to, to get that? That's that's exciting. That's exciting. A lot of lot of, of backhanders and payments going on. <laughs> no, I think it's you know it's always a question of stepping stones and being ready, and also the opportunity. It's often what I say to my colleagues as well. I mean, we have plenty of people who are very very talented and very ambitious, but you know you can't force these things either. It has to be right time, right place, because there has to be. A change, there has to be the right job available at the right time. I think in my case, it was probably a touch early, probably a touch earlier than, than anybody had planned either, but the opportunity was there. And they chucked me in the deep end and, and it worked. You know, I, I learned to swim <laughs> somehow. Now, so. you worked directly under George Kern yeah. when he was the CEO. And then, you, correct me if I'm wrong, you, were, you replaced him, right? You came right after yeah. him. Yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah. Now, George Kern, who's now at Breitling, is one of the more well-known CEOs in, in the watch industry. And I had met him many, many times. And he's someone who, you know, he has a reputation that comes before him. Like you hear a lot of things about George Kern before you meet George Kern. And I, 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 like, I like George a lot. I find him to be a very practical person, but he's very different than a lot of the other sort of, you know, watch brand CEOs. What are some of the, like the top lessons you learned from him? Well, I think one of those things that really helped me on my path and that I, I try to to bring to the team today as well is that you have to at some point, you know, just go for something. You know, you're never going to have 100% certainty that all the bases are covered and everything's right and everything's aligned. And, and it's that mix of, you know, taking sensible management decisions, as, as it were, uh, especially like in the context of the pandemic and all of these things, you, you you have to, you can't do that on a hunch. You can't do that sort of uh, just uh, from a gut feeling. But then you have other things where, you know, there's not really a science in our industry. And I think anybody who tries to turn this into sort of empirical science that relies on market research, consumer <laughs> insight, it just doesn't work. You know, Look at, at the end of the day. <laughs> no, you've got, you've got to, at some point, there's this creative moment and at some point you have to run with ideas and actually to 
some sometimes it's sort of the wildest ideas that I like the most because through the obstacles that are obviously there, it's very easy to turn around and say, oh, no time, no budget, no capacity. And it's, it's a very easy answer. But sometimes, you know, you've got to go for it and, and you find solutions on the way. And that's how you learn both as an organization, as a brand, but also in terms of design. And that's really the things that move the needle. And I think this sort of um, trust sometimes you just sort of have the, the energy not to question, over question things and just run with it at some point. Um, it's, it's definitely something I, I learned in that journey, I think. And then I, I try to keep holding on. Let's mention some context to people because I think you're saying some really salient things. And the context here is that if you are a watch brand, you have these two really like complete opposite forces pulling you. On the one side, you are a manufacturer. And by definition, you need to be efficient. You need to plan. If something goes wrong with the machine while it's out you know, in the wild, that's a bad thing, right? Yeah. And so there's all this high level of conservatism and risk aversion inherent in the manufacturing process. And then the other side, you have the design side and the marketing side, which like you said, you can't, there's no science to learning like how to like make your brand appeal to someone. You have to be experimental and take risks with design as well as marketing decisions and things like that. Help, help people understand how big of a deal it is to have these yeah. opposing struggles because the conservative side seems to be win winning a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one that actually comes out frequently when we have discussions about certain vintage models. And, and of course, um, clients ask me, you know, why watch is not this thin anymore? Why is it not like this and not like that? And so well, one of the main reasons is today a mechanical watch has to work and, and consumers yeah. quite rightly expect And that. work well. You know? And work well and work reliably for a long time. And if I go back to the designs of the 60s and 70s, or even, I mean, I remember we spent five years redesigning the, the Paul Weber mechanism, which is essentially a digital, mechanical digital display of time using uh, turning discs. And of yeah, course, when you go back cool. to the 1880s and the original mechanism, um, you know, they lost like uh, 10 minutes on the hour in terms of precision. <laughs> so it was nothing it's reliable a, it's at It's a parlor all. piece. It's something <laughs> yeah, you take is, out exactly. to the guys and be like, check this out. Then you put exactly. it away and you use your real but watch was, to tell the time. It was basically useless. And nowadays when we re-engineer that, it actually has to work. And if it, you know, if it's off by a couple of seconds a day, we're going to hear about it. So the, the demands that go into these watches are completely different. But you're right, our industry is uh, notoriously long-term, you know, including the entire supply chain. Um, and all of our engineering and, of course, you know, constructing a, a new movement for mechanical watch is basically a five-year process. It's very akin to sort of the automotive industry development cycles. Uh, and then, you know, a, a full watch variant on a movement is, is clearly sort of a three-year process of which the final year you just spend uh, a fine adjustment of materials. Because the, the issue with our world also is that um, CAD planning and CAD design in mechanical watches this is extremely different from my previous world, which was architecture and interior design, where you have almost full control over the final result in a computer rendering. So if, if I'm going to build a store today or we're going to build a manufacturing center or any space, I can control what I do on the computer screen to like 95%. And the rest is lighting adjustment. Very, very easy to control in that sense. And mechanical watches and jewelry are nothing like that because... It, there comes a point where both the watch movement will only come to life and be finished by the intervention of the know-how of a watchmaker, you know, and that's not something that the, the, the computer is going to give you. And the same in design, like all the actual feeling of a product on your skin, the way it interacts with the light, the reflections, the proportions, 
you, you can't render that properly. Not even with the best rendering people in the world, not the best software in the world can give you a realistic result. And then you can imagine with, you know, CNC machine parts and handmade dials and all the rest of it, the, the cycles that it takes to come from one stage of a prototype to the next are easily sometimes two, three months. And then you come back to it and you go, oh, now the reflection on the crown changed a bit. It looks a bit big. Now can we make the crown a tiny bit smaller? And then you're waiting another two months. So that's really, <laughs> that's what makes the process so long. Then, as you say, the rest is then quality assurance, testing, testing, testing. You know, also people often ask me, yeah, why does it take so long to do a NATO strap? And it's because what we put into a NATO strap in terms of testing is completely different from something else you might buy at a different price point. Because we have to ensure this stuff lasts and this stuff performs. And that's that's why it's so long-term. Where does that part of the culture come from? Because, look, you and I are gear guys. And for us to have gear that doesn't work is like heresy. Mm. We could never think about it. But in the luxury context, we know that a very small percentage of the people are going to be using for that thing. And a lot of brands have made the calculus that, yes, indeed, it's actually more profitable for us to make stuff that doesn't work rather than put the time into making it work. So at IWC, and maybe for yourself, where does the culture come where you just you, you couldn't think to release mm. something that didn't do its job properly as yeah, a proper yeah. piece of gear? I think it's exactly that. It's the engineering DNA of the people who are behind IWC. And I feel this all of the time when I have discussions with my technical team. And there are certain things that my technical people will just not do. It's they can't do it. It's for them. It feels like treason to the craft, you know. So it's impossible. They can't. They can't bend over buckets. So there is this this really strong feeling, and it's absolutely essential. And, and it's good that they're stopping me sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to look at speedy solutions, because you know it's, it's like we say about every single pilot's watch and every single diving watch. We know that 99% of these watches will not be worn pulling seven Gs out of a canyon system in a, in a Super Hornet, and they will not be worn. Uh, diving uh, down some uh, deep sea crevice. But we do want to make sure that because you essentially, as you said at the very beginning, you're buying a tool watch, if it did come to it, this stuff has to work. It has to perform its original job. And that's often what I try to explain about pilot's watches as well. We are working so closely with the US Navy nowadays and with all the Navy pilots because we want all that feedback from you know, aviators who actually have the most packed flying schedule of any air force or air wing in the world, you know, it's basically five days a week, twice a week, uh, twice a day, um, unique amount of, of um, use and wear and pressure and repeated use and banging about the cockpit and pressure drops and G-forces and all the rest of it. And only then do I know that every single Top Gun chronograph that goes into our boutiques that will probably never be worn inside a jet, you know, still performs to that level if it has to. But beyond that, it needs to be beautiful and stunning and feel good and give people this sort of idea of flying. When I hear you talk about all the testing, I get it. I've seen it done. I know it when you feel it. But it's such a complicated concept to communicate. And there's a lot of competition out there within the exact same space selling products that are designed to do the same things. What, in your opinion, is the right way to explain to consumers that you not only want make a beautiful tool, but you make a good functional tool? That's sort of a lost art right now in, in watch brand marketing. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's definitely a, a bit of a balancing exercise, I would say, because, you know, the the luxury industry and the nature of luxury has always been that, you know, clients are buying into um, a set of values, they're buying into a dream and they're buying into an expression of personality. And you can't separate this. And that's why we're not making just functional instruments because 
Uh, as we all know, there, there are, are many electronic devices also in the space of diving and aviation that do the technical job perfectly, at, at least until the battery fails. And it's, it's, it's not just that. What we're saying is we're honing a mechanical craft to make instruments that basically last forever that say something about you. And this kind of part of it is, is also absolutely important. And you think all the way back to, you know, Roman times and beyond when people used to identify with the lifestyle of the, the ruling classes of the day and the ruling classes of the day commissioned luxury objects and art and sculpture and all the rest of it to then, you know, the Middle Ages when you had the first sort of, you know, in, in, in the late Middle Ages society, sort of journals circulating Europe about what which king was wearing what and all the rest of it to then, uh, you know, the, the film stars of the 20th century when this kind of part of celebrity came out and this power of association where brands and objects and art associate with certain personalities that become sort of this incarnation of the brand values, that's really an essential part. And people sometimes frown at that, go, oh, yeah, you know, celebrity marketing, but it is at the heart a, a, a core thing of what luxury is about, that you can identify with the values. Yeah. It's the personality. It's the part of the, the company that other human beings can relate to. I I, yeah. I totally hear you. Let's let's talk about interior design a little bit, because obviously it's important to you, and, and I do not have the formal education in that. But I did one time read a book about chairs, <laughs> and this entire book was about this sort of complicated world of chair design. Yeah. Yeah, there's so yeah. much that goes into it, and it opened up my eyes to this culture and history and status and materials and privilege and and you know uh, you know everything about chairs. And it's just it fascinated me. And then it got me thinking in talking to you that one of the biggest revolutions that I, I think you might have even been responsible for this in the modern watch brand boutique is the addition of chairs, a seating area. It used to go mm. from a jewelry-style store that you stand around in, and for men, there was nothing to look at except, you know, jewelry cases, yeah. to, I remember the first time that, that I saw the new IWC boutique. I don't know if it was New York, which was the first one, but it finally came Hong to Kong. L.A. Yeah, Hong it was Kong, Hong Kong was the first, I think one. The first one. Yeah, yeah. and it eventually came to L.A., mm. nearby here on, on, on Rodeo, and, and um, you know, I, I remember realizing, you know, maybe I think it was the New York one, the first one I went to, but it was like, it looks like someone's living room. It looks like a yeah. cool guy's living room. And you want to be able to go in there and hang out because nobody buys a watch without first having a watch guy chat. You know what I mean? Like you talk yeah. about it. No one's just like, I like that. Let's buy it. It's a discussion. Mm. And nobody wants to have a discussion when they're uncomfortable. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. When, were you responsible for that? I have a feeling you may yeah, have been. De yes, definitely. So um, Hong Kong Heritage back in, that would have been 2008 or thereabouts, um, was the first boutique that literally took this approach to the way we organized the boutique, where we said it was first and foremost about creating a residential feel uh, that enables conversation and enables hospitality. And I think you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head, is watches are very different from many other product categories because the buying process of a mechanical watch is a relationship-based and a guided process. And, and you're absolutely right, and this is always going to be the limitation of a straightforward e-commerce solution, is that for many people, they do not go into the purchasing process of a mechanical watch knowing exactly what they're after, unless it's for investment only, and then ending up buying exactly that. And we often you know, witness that, that and it's also it's 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 part of the skill of a sales associate and uh, in in a watch boutique, 
is that people come in, they'll give you an idea, but but often you have to then feel out what they're actually after. And I even know that for myself, I know that for my wife, that you come in with a preconceived idea, but often it's not what you actually end up wanting and it wouldn't have been the right decision and you end up buying something quite different. And that's that's why this sort of setting of the conversation is really important. And the other thing is that we realize that, especially in our space, um, people partly buy into the product, but people buy into the human relationship. And we see this a lot in our retail boutiques, especially Beverly Hills, that at the end of the day, it becomes, it's a circle of friends. It's not just a straightforward, like you described in the olden days, across the, the jewelry case, sort of, you know, salesperson client relationship. It's, it's a social thing. And of course, the setting um, at the beginning of this trend especially had to reflect that. And that's why we started to build these boutiques that give a, a huge variety of, of settings, you know, and whether you want to have the chat over a beer at the bar or sit down comfortably in the lounge or still people obviously prefer sometimes the more formal setting of a desk. But we wanted to make sure that these boutiques had all sorts of different settings that allowed you to party, that allowed you to have a formal conversation. And then as you go deeper in the brand, further down into the back of the space, and it's actually organized like this as well. When you look at Rodeo Drive, you see at the beginning, you have sort of the, the high um, bar chair seating around the central table. Then it goes into a more formal desk setting. Then it goes into a lounge. And then upstairs, you've got this sort of really comfortable uh, living room setting of that, that movie maker's lounge. And, and that's really just to offer that variety and be able to, and to, to allow and enable conversations between people and relationships. How would you take it a step further? How would you make the boutique environment even more sort of welcoming to those types of conversations mm. and experiences that get you that, you know, that emotional connection of the watch where you got to have? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's what, what we um, started with our boutique in Zurich. We opened uh, in the middle of the pandemic last summer, and, and I'm sure you haven't been able to see it yet, but I'd love for Unfortunately you to Unfortunately not. Because uh, we've been sort of all locked down around here. Um, but that's been an amazing success. And what I changed for Zurich was to say, I want to get away from basically the retail store. Well, it started, the starting point was basically when we went and, and had the um, Spitfire takeoff event in Goodwood in 2019, when the Spitfire flew around the world. And we, we created this totally immersive um, world of uh, aviation with all the bars, the hospitality, the hotel, every element was themed. We had... The, the the Royal Army Red Devil parachute team, there were so many elements. And I thought, gosh, this is really a story that you can actually walk into. And it doesn't need any explanation. And you walk into the hangar and you walk into the setup. We did it all like a vintage fairground type, type affair. And everybody just felt it. It didn't need words. And that's the moment when I thought, look, when we're doing translation into retail boutiques, you're relying on screens, you're relying on props, you're relying on pictures. But it's not... It doesn't give you that level of an experience of the story. Um, and a similar thing happens when I take people to, to the racing world and to Formula One, that once they've spoken to people like Toto and Lewis, once they've met the team behind the Formula One brand, clients often turn around to me and say, oh, I totally get it why you're working with these people, because it's the same mindset. And I love the engineering. It's amazing what goes into these cars. And I said, OK, we have to find a way to bring the story in a much more tangible way to our stores. And that's why in Zurich, we stopped to try and do a concept that covers every single angle of the IWC brand. And we went after one single story for that store that's going to be totally unique, that is a destination, that's not going to be replicated, and that really immerses you in this one particular world. And there we chose, the starting point was the home base, the home gar garage of our um, vintage racing team with the 300 SL going. And then we said, okay, we'll build this by making this connection between watchmaking and automotive engineering. 
I'm telling that on every single level, from the outer shop windows to the setup, to the experiences, to the digital world, to the hospitality F&B concept, all the way to the watchmaker downstairs. Every single element tells the story of IWC and racing. And then we'll do, you know, the next door will be completely different. And, and, and that really, I think, is, is the next step in terms of making these stories are much more authentic because obviously you can pack a lot more content into these stores when you're not trying to cover seven, eight different things and, and really, really um, trying to bring this into a story that you can walk into and basically an everyday event. I, I Look, I'm, I'm excited to go to some of these stores, right? Because you, you clearly get it. And I think that's what people need to realize about what it means to be an interior designer like yourself is that you are, you understand the emotional setting that you want to create for someone to have a good experience. It's not just yeah. how to use space properly and how to organize it well. You're basically creating, you know, an um, atmosphere. a little it's world. It's about feeling yeah. it, yeah. And that, it's yeah. an atmosphere that, that, and I always, always think that about good architecture as well. Good architecture for me are spaces where I don't need a, a, a plate on the wall explaining to people what this is supposed to represent. This is often what I struggle with with art as well, because good architecture a good space people can feel and it changes the emotion it, it lifts your spirit and everybody behaves differently and i often it, it makes me sometimes like smile when you go into stressful public spaces and we all know them train stations airports hospitals you know badly designed public spaces and you can see people's behavior change people are becoming aggressive people shouting at members of staff. And then the reaction is always that- You're talking about New York City, sir. No, <laughs> could be London, could be Paris, could be anywhere. But the reaction is always that the authorities then put signs up, please don't abuse our staff, please don't attack our staff and all of this stuff. But nobody's really asking, why are perfectly sensible people turning into aggressive Because we are products of our environment. We yes, are, I mean, look at what happens when someone is in a mob. Their intelligence level goes down. Why? Because yeah. we are products of our environments. Exactly. Immediate environments. Environments can make a positive impact as well. And a well-designed space lifts people's spirits. They promote positive behavior and just general good well-being. And I think that's something we... We should never underestimate. And I think also when we create an environment for the brand, if we do it the right way, it lifts the spirit. And that's something I was really most proud of with our new manufacturing center. You know, we spent six years designing that. And really, as you described at the beginning, trying to find that balance between the efficiency of manufacturing, which you have to have, the ergonomics and the daylighting and the comfort of the working environment, but also expressing the brand. And when you then have people who've been with us for maybe 30 or 40 years, and the first day they move into the new facility, they turn around and go, oh my gosh, you know, this made me so proud of what I do here. What an environment to work in. And you feel that people are happier when they enter the space in the morning. I think that's, that's the absolute best we can hope to achieve as architects, that people have a professional home where they are productive, they feel positive, they enjoy being there. And I think this is so much more valuable than trying to cram everybody into crowded public spaces. And it just needs a bit of design intelligence. You know, that, that's all it takes. I, I agree. You know, people always make the connection between cars and watches, which is obviously logical. People don't mm. as often make the connection between architecture and watches, which is in, in a lot of ways even, even you know, just, just as relevant. Yeah, and yeah. You know, I have this theory, and again, maybe you give me some feedback on this theory, but there's a lot of people that like watches who, that are control freaks. I'm one of them. You might be mm. one of them as well. It's, it's not mm. a point of shame. It's just something we need to know about ourselves. And 
one of the reasons we like watches is because there's a cathartic sense of escape in this microcosm of perfection. You can never yeah. really have perfection and complete control in the natural world. Yeah. But within this Absolutely. confined space, you can get pretty darn close in a way which is satisfying and somehow gives us that sense of control. We are owning something that has been so goddamn well controlled. It makes us smile. Mm. I think there's two elements to that. Uh, be, being one of those control freaks uh, myself, I think I see two main points. Number one, there is a depth of engagement. And what I mean by that is um, you're probably similar, and I'm definitely like that. Things that are shallow, where there's nothing to discover beneath the surface, bore me a lot. <laughs> so I love things that have an infinite complexity, and I love things that have many you know, hidden Easter eggs, hidden background stories that you can discover. And that basically means that you can either enjoy something just on the surface, you find it beautiful, you enjoy it, you wear it, and that's great. Or if you want to literally geek out and sort of go deep, there is infinite layers of discovery available that make you sort of connect with the product on a more deeper and meaningful way. And I think that's that's one important element to me. And the other one, so, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's it's about this 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 environment that you can control. And and I've got, <laughs> I've got things like that in my life. You know, it's my little spaces where I, I it, it gives me that sense. You know, when the world is chaos, that I'm this is the one bit that you do sort of control 100% and that sort of feels complete and you can just have it exactly how you want it. And that is weirdly satisfying. It's true. Yeah. And we need it pathologically, you know. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned the word geek. And I think that's interesting because, you know, you and I are roughly the same age. When we were growing up, nobody wanted to be a geek. And then somewhere along the line in the, maybe the early 2000s, the, the concept of becoming a geek had a little bit more sex appeal. Why exactly mm. do you think this happened? I'm not sure it's got sex appeal, but I, you know, if I go back a little <laughs> bit, I, um, I agree with you when your geek was sort of something very negative for a while. But when you think at the, the heyday of modernism in the 60s and 70s, and when, when for example, the, the ingenieur line came about for IWC, you know, back in those days, I mean, geeks were the heroes because they were the engineers. They were the people who worked out progress, who worked out speed and flying cars and crazy rockets and going to the moon and all the rest of it. And that was what society relied on to to achieve progress and to give everybody better holidays better cars and better livelihoods you know and that was great and then i think you're right in in postmodernism there was a time when when this belief in technical skill science and ability to to develop things lost its appeal to a certain extent and, and, and people lost a little bit of faith in, in, in the good in that, you know, and productivity increases and all that didn't seem It's that, like they took geeks anymore. for granted, you know, they're like, oh, there's yeah. geeks everywhere. My life is so perfect because of yeah. them. I can laugh about them. All of a sudden things <laughs> stop working. Where are the geeks at? <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. And then everything went digital and stopped working and screens were black and microphones were not connecting. And then we needed the geeks again. <laughs> there's my resident geek is nodding in the back. <laughs> <laughs> it's when stuff stops working, we suddenly miss them daily. <laughs> there are so many different types of watches that IWC has made in its even recent history. But there's three different watches you make a lot of the time, and you're not the only one. And those are watches for people flying, watches mm. for people who are diving, and watches for people who are driving. And a lot of the time, the functionality of these watches is identical. The only thing which yeah. is different is the design. But there seems to be more than that. There's a personality to them. So I want you to tell me in your own words, what is the personality of a diving watch, a pilot's watch, and a driving watch? And what makes them different? Mm. 
Yeah, I think I would add one more. I would say, you know, in, in terms of Portuguese, it's also the DNA of the navigation watch. Oh, oh, there's even one. more. No, no, yeah. no doubt. You can, you, can, you can get even more. But these are the three, like, biggest yeah, ones, yeah. you know? Definitely. And, and I think when you go from the Portuguese to the pilots, the sense of na- navigation is probably one of the, the calmer personalities of this kind of sports watch segment where you say, look, this is all about giving you this idea of the, the compass, the instrument on your wrist. It's sort of this constant that you refer to at key junctures in your life to say, okay, there are all my memories. I see every little dent and scratch in that steel case. I know where I'm going. And it gives you the sense of calm, the sense of sort of um, knowing where to go, of charting your course in life. And then the pilots adds a layer to that because I think the pilots speaks about various degrees of adventure. You know, when I look at the different expressions of pilots, all the way from like maybe a Saint-Exprit, a Petit Prince watch, which is quite poetic, into the Spitfire, which has this sort of romance of uh, the heyday of fighter aces and military aviation. It's kind of romantic. So it gives you a, a sort of soft, relatable, warmish kind of sense of adventure. And then it there's goes a r- all the risk taking. They're like a yeah, pilot wears a, like a risk taker. Yeah, there's sort of this, this gentleman's swagger risk taking that has a lot okay. of elegance to it. And then it goes into, you know, the Top Gun more modern watches, which are a little bit harder, I'd say. They're a little bit more adventure focused. And then, of course, you buy into this kind of lifestyle of the, the fighter jet type of person. And it's still in, in through all the um, pilot's universe this is always to do with a certain sense of elegance as well. And this is something that, you know, I had in my head and, you know, from the movies, but when you discover that this is actually true, it's just, it's, it's so fascinating to see. And one of my key moments there was when we first went up to Fallon and I spoke to the uh, Top Gun instructors up at Fallon about the 50th anniversary piece and about their instructor's watch. I obviously came with all the serotonin and ceramic and subdued and military. And they were like, no, 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 no. We want baby blue leather lining. We want a blue calf leather Santoni high-end polished Italian strap. We want a blue dial with a stainless steel case. <laughs> you know, and you think, oh, okay. So this is actually really a status symbol for you guys. This is more than a tactical instrument. It's, yeah, of course. I just want to look good. You know, <laughs> So it's, it's that sort of thing in, in the pilots. And then the divers watches, I think, they speak about a different type of adventure. They're a little bit more rugged. They're often really about this sort of super waterproofing and case resistance. And it's all a bit sort of threatening and hardcore. It's not as... Um, elegant and positive. It's a bit more sort of full-on adventure. So it's it's a, it's it's well, more suited pi- to full-on. Show off, right? You you there's some there's a spectacle in it mm, where I think yeah. a lot of the divers are totally comfortable doing it alone. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's that, and I think it's a little bit more rough and ready and out and out 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 in the elements. And it, there's more there's this element of survival to it than you would have. I mean, just yeah. about DNA. You know, talking about what these watches sort of mean. And often that's why you see sort of more hardcore technical executions on the, on the divers' watches. And it's, it's more this kind of sort of um, survival instrument type thing. Okay. What about driving watches? Well, driving watches, I think they, uh, they, they talk a lot about the, the, the simple idea of speed and competing. And I think there's always this, this engineered quality to them that relates to kind of the, the engine thing and the race car thing, which is sort of, you know, there, there is, is a lot of that in, in the racing watches. And then they talk about successes. And that's why I think the, the, the meaning of the additions and, you know, going all the way from the back engravings to the Newmans to, you know, what we've done now with Lewis and what's coming out this year, they, they often tell this kind of success story and they have sort of these these moments when I won XYZ and you know it's, it's not a coincidence that the Daytona is called the Daytona you know there's this, this clear relationship to these racing milestones or we had with Mauro Engel this year 
who not only won Daytona last year and, and then he very kindly emailed me and said, Chris, I have a problem. I've won the Daytona. They're going to give me a Rolex. There's nothing I can do about it. I was like, Maro, mate, enjoy. You won Daytona. I mean, what more do you want? The at least AMG, he let you know. At least he asked for yeah, your no, advice, was, you know. Yeah, no, it was extremely kind and he, he really felt bad about it. I said, no, don't feel bad. It's an amazing achievement. Celebrate it. Enjoy it. And then, but he also, he, he smashed the uh, the Nürburgring production car record this year, which is um, end of last year, which was absolutely amazing. And of course, these milestones, they are also celebrated in these kind of racing watches. And that's, I think you have a lot of this, this sort of DNA um, in those particular pieces. Okay, so let's boil this down to one word for each, okay? For the pilot's watch, I'm going to call it the daredevil. Yeah. And the diver's watch, something like the commando or some type like, you know, word like that. And then for the driver's watch, like, you know, the challenger, the person who's like the competitive athlete, you know, like, mm -hmm. the cha I yeah. think challengers are good. That, that's... Yeah, like, in pilots, yeah. I would add one thing. In pilots, it's very much about freedom and self-determination. That's really a huge part of, of the DNA why people wear pilots-style products. It's, it's a sense of adventure, like you say, but it's also this idea of control, of self-determination, of freedom that's really, really in there. I really wish that these types of conversations came out a little bit more because, you know, when we see new watches, it's not just from IWC, but from so many brands, I think one of the biggest things consumers are asking themselves is, that's great. Can you tell us why you made it? And mm. sometimes the only good reason brands have is it was for an anniversary. You know, like there's so much that goes behind it, so much philosophy. I mean, you could talk forever about the sort mm. of nuanced appeal of a particular design or mechanical complication. But at the end of the day, it just gets translated into, look, it's got a blue dial. Mm. How is it that we can tell some of these stories about the genesis of these products better? Yeah, I think the the funny thing I, I often observe is that, you know, our clients and people naturally connect to the watches for the right reason. And it's not always expressed. And, and as you correctly describe, it doesn't always say it in the ad or say it in the product literature. But in the conversations and in the experience of the piece on the skin, I think often people very, very naturally and organically connect with the right kind of story. And they can't always put their finger on it, but it's definitely happening. And I've observed it time, time, time again. And it's true that sometimes, you know, people are in the, the mind frame to have a deep psychological conversation about it. Sometimes they don't. And that's also fine. And I think at the end of the day, what we want to do, and that's what I maybe try to, to touch on with these, these layers of discovery. If somebody comes to us and says, look, I just love the watch. Don't need to know how it works. It's fine. It's, it, I just love it. If that's fine. I don't, you know, I'm not putting the full-on technical, you know, well, information course. on it's every like, single I'll be happy person. to take your money, sir. Please yeah, wear no, our product in good not, health. But it's not it. about that. It's because I believe that at the end of the day, a non-essential, highly emotional product like a mechanical luxury watch needs to bring joy. And if that joy is just the appeal of it and wearing it, it makes me feel good, that's fine. If I want to come and meet the watchmaker and the person who set the dial and everything and find out every little detail and put my signature on the back of the dial before it goes into the watch, also fine. But I think it's it's, it's, you have to have this, this degree of, of immersion that, that needs to be able to suit very different personalities of buyers. And I think at the end of the day, as I said with good architecture, you want to walk in, it needs to lift your spirit, you want to get it, you want to feel it. You might not be able to explain it, you might not want to know who the architect is and exactly how it came about and all the rest of it and how the Barcelona chair was designed and why it is in Barcelona and what that's all about. But you feel it's nice and people put it in their living rooms enjoying it, loving the design without knowing the background story. And that's also allowed. And I think it's, it's, it's just... But the person that, that, that likes it 
without knowing the background story, almost always has seen someone that does know the background story really yeah. enjoy it. So I think that a certain percentage of the population always needs to know the background story. Otherwise, you're not going to have the other people that sort of just comfortable knowing, well, those guys that are into that, at least they really like it. That's true. That's true. I want to tell you the story that comes to mind of like my first impactful experience with IWC because it was actually kind of cool. And it was earlier on in my career. I I don't remember what year it was. It must have been maybe 2010 or something like Mm. that. And it was up in San Francisco. And the you know the then IWC team invited me to this event. They had this boat called the Plastiki <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that the brand was sponsoring, and then they were doing mm. a little event at the Yacht Club and sort of just north of, of San Francisco. And I went there, and you know, again, I was I was pretty young into this. I was like, I think you know, I, I started the website in two thousand seven, so it's not that much longer after I started it, and. The first thing is like, let's go check out this boat, boat made of plastic bottles. And this this guy, one of the Rothschilds, you yeah, know, this very famous. rich family, yeah, David Rothschild, who I remember to this day was wearing mismatched socks. Um, you know, he has this glorious idea of making a boat out of these bottles that, you know, you, you, you generate all your own electricity. I remember they were growing kale yeah. <laughs> on yeah, the boat. Yeah. And, you know, this little tour, this, you know, and again, you look back and it's like, only someone who is that wealthy could even take the months and months and months to do this. But it was this powerful notion of engineering and activism and absurdity. And I was like, I remember hmm. sitting there being like, no wonder this watch brand wants to be associated with it. This is such a ridiculous story. You have hmm. to be, you know, you have to be. And then there was this dinner. And I remember, um, you might still work with the brand, Benoit from the hmm. brand. who was run- He's at Panera now, that's right. Yeah. right. He was running... North America for, for IWC at the time. Yeah. Super smart guy, very sharp. Mm. And he, I remember he's like, hey, Ariel, I want, you, I want to introduce you to someone. And he walked me over to Robin Williams, who yeah. was a friend of the brand. And yeah, you he were mentioning, you know, Top Gun. He, was, he wore his Top Gun yeah, pilot's yeah. watch. And he wore that a lot. He was on magazine covers with it. And I sat down next to Robin Williams for a good little while. And we had a real like watch guy conversation. And it was it was priceless. Yeah, he was, it was a one of the most. Guy. Yeah, was it was to- one of the most Same amazing. James Marsden, by the way, James Marsden, Marsden always blows me away because he's like also even when I started off as actually to have been a, in a kind of product placement ambassador kind of role in the beginning. Right. Oh, really? He, he became and, one. Yes, and, and I noticed very very quickly that uh, James was super into his watches and wanted to you know spend time with all of the engineers and watchmakers and stuff. And he's a proper watch guy these days. And, that's, and so is fun. Tom Brady. Yeah, Tom Brady as well. Definitely, I mean, Tom Brady. That goes back. I mean, all the way to the GST era and the '90s, I think, and then whatever. Giselle f- first bought for him, and then over the years, I mean, we've always had conversations about big pilots, perpetual calendars. He bought the um, Spitfire Times when he was really into back in the day, and then when the opportunity came along to actually be formally working with was Tom, of course. Said, I mean, of course, it was it was a no brainer for me, and it's just one of those stories. It just has a you know probably ten year build up before we actually got around to it. So let me let me ask you this. We, we obviously Tom Brady, very well known, and he is an IWC brand ambassador right now. For for those that don't know, um, and you know he's someone who who is a watch guy. Now, what I think is important to recognize is that brands like IWC cannot just choose ambassadors based upon their overall popularity. It's more complicated than that. It needs to be someone who fits the values of the brand, you know, really through and through. And so I want to ask you, because you are someone that has an athletic background, 
What do you admire in Tom Brady as an athlete? Explain to people who don't know what is so awesome mm. about him as an athletic performer. Well, in many ways, there's a lot of similarities to to what I see in, in, in Lewis Hamilton as well. Um, obviously, which is not he's not as uh, uh, well known in the U.S. as Tom Brady. But he's a driver. He's a driver. Very, he's a Formula One driver. We have a very similar approach to 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 their sport. And what I generally admire in athletes is this grounded, down to earth focus on the craft and often. Genuine athletes, at the heart of it, despite all of the lifestyle and the culture that surrounds it, they are driven and determined to just do better at their sport time after time after time. And the amount of focus and consistency, in, and I know that because I'm, you know, sort of a semi-professional sports person, but one of my big problems has always been consistency. You know, I had days where I could perform at a relatively decent level, but then I had real off days, you know, and, and the way that these kind of sort of what we refer to now as the GOATs, how they can, you know, focus time and again and deliver under all sorts of pressures, all sorts of different environments, you know, and they're very, very humbly focused on getting their stuff right. So what you see in Lewis and Tom as well is that before they go into their big moments, they obviously they need to be in the zone, they need to focus and they won't do anything else in, in those periods of time. Totally respect that. But they, they go for it, you know, they, they deliver and they have such a work ethic. And Lewis still, when you speak to him today, and, and his biggest dream is literally just winning the next race. And that's what they focus on, you know, and, and I admire that with all of the influences that are around them, with all of the, the, the world of, of commercial activity, promotion, all of the fashion stuff that Lewis does and, and all of the, the, the surrounding noise that they can still get themselves into that space where they can pull the impossible out of the bag. And he saw after all of the uh, successes at New England and all the controversy, and then Tom moves over down to, to the Buccaneers, down to Tampa Bay, and that team gets totally turned around. And, and he, after they haven't been in the Super Bowl for years, they go and, and win it in, in, in such a dramatic fashion. And the same with Lewis, you know, when he's beaten in the back of qualifying and, and you look at all the stats and you look at the taxis and you think, no way on earth can he turn this around? And he will look at the engineers calmly. They'll tell him something about a split 0.5 of a degree of tire pressure on the left where he needs to watch it and balancing the car. And he goes out there and they go like, Lewis, you got to go for it in the next lap. And he says, yeah, I need to take my time. I need to build a bit of space in the traffic. And then he goes and delivers like one of the fastest laps of all time on the circuit. And you think, how on earth do you love it? Let me ask you this. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same or different for, for Brady and Hamilton, but what what percentage of their success is is you know, risk taking? Like you know, sometimes the reward goes to that person that takes the gamble. At the same time, yeah. of course, they have to be masters of their craft. But are they brave or are they just very perceptive? They're definitely brave, but I do think <laughs> I think especially in the case of Lewis, because I watched him a couple of times. I think. Sometimes I feel like he overstates a little bit the sort of impulsiveness of it when I do think that his risk-taking is extremely calculated. Yes, they have lightning-fast reactions, and you saw that a couple of years ago at the Monaco GP. There's uh, Verstappen went in, in, in the back of him at the chicane, and when you see the split seconds in which Lewis reacted and cut the chicane, which totally saved him from just, you know wiping out into the wall, um, there, there are these like razor sharp reactions. But when they go for the final push and the final overtake and, and the final touchdown and all the rest of it, I do think that they are extremely perceptive, as you say. They feel it and they know when they can push and go for it. And I don't think it's, it's lighthearted, uh, you know, 
uh, daring risk taking. I do think it's very, very calculated. And they're just extremely good at, at feeling their environment, feeling their team, feeling the car. And these nuances that would be completely lost on you and me, they just feel it. And what do you say to them when they're like, okay, Chris, can you make a watch for me now and let me design it? What's your, what's your core response? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously we love these opportunities given the very, very, uh, uh, you know, packed time schedule that, that unites uh, all of these athletes. With Lewis, it's always a super interactive experience. Um, we're just working on the, the, the second one at the moment. And of course, they, he has a very, very good feel. And you can imagine Lewis has a particular style and then IWC and Lewis meet somewhere in the middle. And it's that sort of juncture between <laughs> sort of the outer edge of IWC and the outer edge of Lewis where it becomes really, really interesting. And that's obviously a genuinely enhanced creative process because, as you say, you know, I don't want to just go and say, oh, like we made it with a blue dial. This has to be a genuine design collaboration that, that both uh, parties and people can stand fully behind. And I think with the Lewis Hamilton one, it was exactly that. You know, he was extremely proud of that. I was extremely proud of that. We wouldn't have made a watch like that without Lewis and, and vice versa. And I think that that's when it, when it, when it gets genuine and interesting. There's got to be so many amazing stories about the, the ambassadors. I think we could do like a whole discussion about that. But I want to go back to products because we, we're, we're running towards the, uh, the latter part of the show here. It's, it's been a really great conversation so far. Thank you. Learned so many interesting things. Thank you. Now, IWC especially has an interesting history with a lot of modern watches and a lot of brands have interesting futuristic designs. But right now, culture, taste is sort of really focused on vintage, retro, you know, more nostalgic types of designs and things like that. What do you think needs to happen in culture before people are ready for more contemporary, modern, or even futuristic mechanical watch design? Yeah, I think there's there's two major drivers, I think. One is we need um, a more of a clear, shared vision of what the future is and what progress is. And I think we've, we really have lost that uh, towards the... 90s and early 2000s, where today, and this also comes, of course, a lot from this this whole angle of uh, threat to the planet and sustainability, where a lot of the um, the progress that we're seeing today, or what we think we need to do in terms of you know saving the climate and saving the planet, by many people is not perceived as really like an improvement in their lives, because often we talk about okay, don't take the aircraft on holiday anymore, don't go here, don't go there. It doesn't feel like things are very easy to buy into as just universally getting better, in a sense. And I think that's something that we struggle a little bit with at the moment. That, so you know, coming we from, see the past as being better, more relaxing, nicer than yeah. the potential future. Yeah, braver and sort of also in a way sometimes sexier, I think. you know. And you saw that this began in the automotive industry probably towards the latter part of the 90s when all in America as well, all the, the retro designs started coming and there's a reinvigoration of all the muscle car designs then into the early 2000s or whenever that was. Uh, you had a lot of you know Ford Thunderbird and all this stuff coming totally retro. You saw this all across the Fiat range, the Fiat 500, which is this coffee machine or wheels type design, you know, which is really like all, all harking back to the to the 50s, 60s and the original design and that then went into fashion and went into watches into everything else. And, and as you say, this is partly sort of finding comfort and security in a seemingly more glorious past. Um, it's also the, the sort of uncertainty about the future, what it's going to bring. Is it total wipeout for humanity? Are we going to manage it? Is it going to be great? Am I going to still have a good life and all the rest of it? And then the other part, I think, is, is generally this feeling of uncertainty, um, which has really started properly for me in my perception with the first financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, which 
led to a lot less adventurous taste and people really focusing in on brands and products that have a long heritage that are universally accepted. And again, also, I mean, the whole investment side of things seem like a safe bet in terms of your investment and so on. And I think the adventurous taste was honed back quite a bit. And I think when you look at the heyday of Basel World, there are probably, you know, 2,000 or more brands at one point in the early 2000s, popping up like mushrooms, ask, asking 60,000 euros for a watch brand with a two-year history. And I think this has really reduced a lot and really focused on less and less trusted brands and really, really familiar designs. And that's, again, I think is a very natural human reaction to adversity and uncertainty, is to surround ourselves with things that give us hope, that give us certainty, that are constant and that everybody can identify with as something that, that is culturally shared. So what is the strategy to inject that sense of optimism in the product design? And maybe what are some contemporary examples about the watches that uh, are about to be released, will have just been released when people hear this? You know, tell me about some of the, the, the stories of optimism in the products. Well, exactly. I think we try to um, exactly do, do both. So we have a, a core range um, that is really, you know, it talks about this sort of continuous improvement and, you know, incremental design development that we see in our core Portuguese and Pilots ranges. And you see that now in, in, the, in the Big Pilot 43 and the Chrono 41, that they are really upgraded products, latest generation of um, of our in-house movements, completely re-engineered cases, 10-bar waterproofing, the, the uh, quick change system on the straps and bracelets, newly engineered bracelets, you know, better ergonomics, uh, complementary diameters, but a design that is really, really incrementally uh, developed and pushed from an 85-year legacy of pilot's watches where the, you know, the dial design goes all the way back to the Mark 11 of uh, 48 and the observation watch of 1940, and you have a great continuity in that story. But at the same time, you'll see this in the different releases that are coming around the Top Gun range um, and, and some others, which are coming a little bit later. Um, you will see how we're pushing the, the boundary of expression and how we're pushing the themes and also how we're having a bit of fun with it, because I think this this element of it is is also really important. You know, it's not, again, it's, it's a luxury product. It, it's not just dead serious. You know, there is an element of playfulness, there is an element of fun, and that's really what we're, we're building in, in every single collection we're launching. Um, well, I think, and then, yeah. I just want to say, because I, you know, I think of these thoughts that I want to in, inject along the way here. And if I had to describe for people that aren't as familiar with the IWC collection, the best watches that IWC makes are essentially this, a tool that you're happy to take on a date. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and, and interestingly, you know, when we just last week uh, launched the tribute to 3705 in, in full serotonium, 41 millimeter chronograph that harks back to our first ever ceramic chronograph in the pilot's range in 1994, the so-called 3705. Um, and it was a wild beast at the time because, you know, pilot's chronographs had uh, just been launched that year, stainless steel, obviously. And then we make this black ceramic beast, which, which is sort of the balance between that quintessential tool and almost a little bit over the top at the time. And now, obviously, this has become very, very familiar in sports watch is a very familiar expression. And we're now taking this to the next level with this serotonin material where we can achieve the, the all black design and our latest in-house movement. And again, when we launched that, we thought initially, oh yeah, everybody who remembers the 3705, they're going to go for it. They're going to love it. But the amount of very young and new customers to the brand that have, you know, fallen in love with that watch and come to us for this watch has really amazed me, which goes again, 
like you say, that there's really a big reaction to this idea of this tool watch that you can take on a date. It's a very good description, actually. I remember that <laughs> when people ask me. I love that because it describes it really, really well. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it's really important, at least in my job, to think of simple ways to explain to a layperson why are the people that are into watches so into it? Because from the side, it looks weird. It looks perverse. Sometimes it looks immoral, like you're spending this much money on this. If you don't understand the psychology, you know, collecting watches, just like collecting many things, looks like a very strange activity. Like you yeah, wouldn't want to yeah. be studied under a microscope. Yeah, it needs a cultural context, definitely, absolutely. And we've, we we recently, um, as you may, may have seen during the 3705 campaign, when I think of this watch in, in car terms, I immediately, immediately thought about the 190 evolution Mercedes-Benz from the early 90s because it had the same sort of edgy outrageousness to it, but sort of all wrapped up in a baby Benz, which is still kind of sort of dad's car. Uh, but then with the crazy Cosworth engine underneath the hood and like sort of totally inappropriate wing on the back. And, you know, to, to people who are into automotive culture, they know exactly what they mean. That means they admire this car, they relate to it. But to non-car people, it's just ugly. <laughs> I often have these discussions entirely. So why that car? It's it's really ridiculous. So, yeah, but you're a car person, you understand why, because you have the cultural context, you understand what the homologation of these crazy DTM cars back in the day, well, that was all about and how, you know, you had, you had things like the Lotus Carlton. I don't know if you remember that over in the US, we had basically a, a GM Opel Vauxhall car, which was like the tamest sedan ever. And then they put like a totally overpowered Lotus engine in the front. <laughs> and this thing is one of the most collective because it's ridiculous. You know, it's like, you know, granddad's taxi car. And then inside you've got this absolute beast of a racing machine. And of course, people who know the context, they totally relate to that. And of course, the cars, you know, by today's standards, maybe not the most beautiful thing, but it's so iconic and it means so much. And sometimes you just need to get the context to appreciate it. I'm so happy you said that about the engine, because I was going to say something to end this podcast. And I, I, you know, I don't even know if you would agree, but I want to say it anyways. It's sort of like, if you're this, you're going to be an IWC watch lover. If you've ever been amused during a conversation or had a joke about an engine in something that may not be the most logical engine in that thing, you're probably yes. an IWC person. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Superlative. This is Chris Granger, and he's the CEO of IWC Watches. You can go to their website, and you can see more about IWC and a blog to watch. We've been covering it for a year. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?